This is The Guardian. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The presidential election of November 2024 seems a long way off, but this time next year, Democrats and Republicans will begin the process of choosing their nominee for the White House. Last weekend, members of the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, voted to upend their primary calendar. Under President Biden's proposal, states like South Carolina, Georgia and Michigan all of which have large African-American populations, would move up the calendar to reflect the influence that those constituencies have within the Democratic Party. One of the main advocates of the change was President Biden, who has a history of losing in New Hampshire and Iowa. But the decision has sparked anger in those states that plan to keep their first-in-the-nation status. New Hampshire's Democratic Party chair, Ray Buckley, well, he blasted the decision, saying... We remain extremely concerned about the effects this calendar will have on our purple, crucial battleground state. So will the old guard give way to the new? And why does it matter which state gets to go first? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. So really, it springs from the 1960s. The Democratic National Convention in 1968 was incredibly undemocratic. My colleague Adam Gabbard works for the Guardian US team. He's been looking into the historical significance of these elections. So you had Hubert Humphrey, the vice president to Lyndon B. Johnson, who was then the president. Uh, He didn't compete in a single primary, but he inherited all the votes from Lyndon B. Johnson. It went to the convention. And basically, a bunch of party insiders just decided it was going to be Humphrey. The regular Democratic voter in the street barely had any say. And this was against a backdrop of huge protests in Chicago outside the convention about a bunch of issues. There were anti-war protests, also kind of uh, people campaigning for civil rights. Protests had also erupted and, and the civil disorders in April when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Then on June 5th, Robert Kennedy was killed as he sought the Democratic Party nomination for president. And more broadly speaking, about the lack of a say in the democratic process. So after that, in 1972, the Democrats thought, well, we better get our act together here. So they introduced what really became the modern primary, where votes by individuals are binding. You vote for a candidate. The candidate has delegates who have to vote for that candidate at the convention. And New Hampshire was first in 1972, and it's been first ever since. It even passed a law to ensure it would be first, which has caused some 
switch around of dates and some furore of its own over the years. And we'll get onto that law in a minute. But you mentioned there that New Hampshire is the first primary. As it happens, Iowa normally edges ahead by a few days. But as you said, it's a different system, the so-called caucus system, which sees members of either one party or the other, Democrats or Republicans, not just the general electorate, but committed members of those parties. They meet up, often in places it can be big school halls, it can be literally people's living rooms, four or five people. It's more informal, and they form clusters uh, together to back their favourite candidate sort of collectively, rather than just, you know, one person, one vote. And it's fair to say that with that elaborate system, uh, it's got a bit complicated in Iowa over the years. But neither Iowa nor New Hampshire have had a particularly stellar track record of picking winners, have they? I mean, there are people who did win either in Iowa or New Hampshire who then did go on to win the nomination and then the White House. For example, Barack Obama famously won Iowa in 2008. But often, actually, those states pick end up picking someone who doesn't come through as the winner. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, Joe Biden didn't win either in 2020. Uh, I think Bill Clinton didn't win either, uh, going further back. So, you know, I think there is an idea and a a civic pride and maybe a sort of arrogance in New Hampshire. And you've been there during the primaries. People are saying, well, we have first say we're the best at choosing a candidate. And uh, I mean, in terms of what the the party and the people want as a whole, it often doesn't match what um, people in New Hampshire want from a candidate. The fact that they so badly got it wrong, if you like, in New Hampshire in 2020 by not picking the man who eventually would win the presidency. And you think about the chaos that some of these Iowa caucuses have had. I suppose in a way, the other way of thinking about it, it's not sort of some personal uh, beef of Joe Biden's, but rather that they have, both those states, forfeited their claim in a way because they either messed it up or they got it wrong in 2020 and before? Yeah, I mean, you know, quite aside from any ideological discussion, like the Iowa caucus in 2020 was a complete farce. Quote, I write on behalf of the Biden for president campaign regarding the considerable flaws in tonight's Iowa caucus reporting system. The app that was intended to relay caucus results to the party failed. The party's backup telephonic reporting system likewise has failed. Associated Press eventually just gave up on declaring a winner. Um, So as far as they're concerned, my understanding is that no one ever won it. And that's partly, as you say, the the way a caucus works, where you essentially go and people go and stand in a church hall and they stand in a corner assigned to their candidate. Just in terms of fixing procedure, it, it would seem to make a lot more sense. And the other thing I would say about a bonus for the early states is money. So there's different studies and some people argue that perhaps it's not a huge financial boon. But if you're in Iowa in January, usually there will be absolutely nothing going on. And every four years, because of the caucuses, every single hotel is booked out. The bars are packed. I mean, you know what journalists are like. The restaurants are packed and uh, people are spending money on TV. So it's like millions of dollars are at stake as well as the exposure. Now, what New Hampshire can often take pride in is that the sort of plucky outsider does have a chance there because just by shaking enough hands, meeting enough people, you can come through even if you don't have the big money. And that is true in Iowa too. Famously, Iowa picked Jimmy Carter in 1976, the then 
barely known former governor of Georgia from Plains, Georgia, the peanut farmer. Uh, And people said then that through a regular process where it was all about TV advertising, there was no chance that somebody like Jimmy Carter would ever have got through. And indeed, they said the same about Barack Obama when he was up against the Hillary Clinton mighty machine in 2008. So there's definitely a, a kind of sentimental support for the role that those traditionally first states uh, have played. But I wanted to talk to someone who could paint a better picture, a fuller picture of why officials in New Hampshire are so keen to fight this decision. A native of the Granite State, as it's known. Uh, my name's Holly Reimer. I'm a reporter for the Associated Press based in New Hampshire for the last 26 years. Holly has covered many presidential elections in her time reporting on New Hampshire. So I asked her to sketch for us what happens when primary season comes around in the small state of New Hampshire. Well, by the winter, it really is is quite a circus. There are reporters, journalists from all over the world, really. Um, You also see a lot of what we call political tourists. People come up from Massachusetts Uh, the rest of New England, because this is a place where you can see the candidates up close. And so it is, particularly that last week, a very frenetic pace with candidates all over the state. Now, we've been um, saying that 2024, the presidential election, is obviously a long way away, but never too early in New Hampshire. There's always sort of sightings of ambitious politicians and presidential hopefuls. You're on the ground there. It's very early. It's just the winter of 2023 now. But are you seeing the first signs of stirrings and activity by would-be presidential hopefuls for 2024? Oh, definitely. And I think years ago, we used to have, you know, a much longer window between primary candidate sightings. But now it seems like almost immediately after one year, one election year, they're here. So Mike Pence has been here multiple times. Uh, Former President Trump was just here last week. Um, So it is definitely picking up. And just explain what, because you're quite right that people come in because you really can see them. I mean, just talk us through the logistics of where they perform, as it were, where they are, and how easy it is to just get around, because it's quite a small state, isn't it? It's quite compact. Yeah, so the geography of New Hampshire really makes it easy. Um, It's a small state. You can get from one end of the state to the other in an hour or so. In the past, there were a lot of what we call town hall meetings. So that's just a candidate standing on a stage, maybe in a small high school gymnasium, taking questions from the crowd. How are the jobs bill and the proposed health care legislation going to account for the level of variability of the needs of cancer survivors? Well, look, uh, first of all, we're proud of you. You look great. Say you agree, huh? You you should, you know. Or they're going to diners and meeting people over breakfast. So it's ideal. You could come up in Manchester, the state's largest city. It's not unheard of for someone to come up and, and see multiple candidates in the same day. They might all be within... 20 or 30 miles of each other at small events. And I remember in 2016, I had just come off the plane from London that day. And before the day was out, I'd seen Marco Rubio uh, at a high school 
in Concord, New Hampshire, and then I think Jeb Bush in Nashua, New Hampshire, and, you know, I'd started the day in London. I mean, it is amazing how much you can do because they're all right there. So what is the argument against New Hampshire being first in the nation that the DNC have been making? Well, the argument for a long time has been that New Hampshire is too small and too white to play such a major role. So the the total population is less than 1.4 million people. It's about 93% white. And so we don't have the diversity that you would see in other states. And what is the counter to that, the defense that New Hampshire makes for itself as to why, despite what you've just said, it's a good pick to go first? The supporters of the New Hampshire primary say that the country and the candidates themselves are well served because the primary requires this close contact with voters, not just name recognition or having a ton of money. That might have become something of a myth in more recent years because you certainly have candidates uh, like Donald Trump who didn't do a lot of that grassroots kind of campaigning. The candidates who do a lot of that sm- those small events, one-on-one conversations, they don't necessarily win. But the supporters of the primary say it still makes them better candidates going forward into other states. So in terms of what it does for the candidates, you've touched on that. But what do you think it does for the voters, the people of New Hampshire themselves to have this process once every four years? What what does the state get out of it, do you think? Well, I think it is a state that prides itself on sort of being very close to democracy. So it's a state where we elect a governor and a 424 member legislature every two years. So there's sort of this constant campaigning. You're very close to the people who are representing you. And so I think there is a sense of pride that we are a place that takes politics seriously. We want to put candidates through their paces. You know, another thing is that unlike in other states, it's really cheap and really easy to get on the ballot for the New Hampshire primary. It only costs $1,000. So compared to other states where the political parties control the process, New Hampshire, you know, it's administered by the state. Um, So I think New Hampshire likes feeling like we are a place where this is a, a well-oiled machine and, and we know what we're doing when it comes to elections. So officials in New Hampshire are, are, are pretty incensed by this decision. They don't like it. What has the response been? What action has New Hampshire's political class taken to defend its coveted status? So we've seen really very strong bipartisan opposition to this. Our Republican governor, Chris Sununu, in his inauguration address earlier this month, spoke directly to President Biden and said, you can come and try to take it, but it is never going to happen. It is just not in our DNA to give it up and take orders from Washington, D.C. And you would expect Republicans to oppose this, but Democrats also have come out very strongly against this move. Um, The chairman of the Democratic Party in New Hampshire has said, look, you know, the DNC has now handed Republicans an easy way to attack us. Longtime supporters of President Biden, including our former governor, 
John Lynch, um, they wrote to the president saying this could jeopardize his campaign because New Hampshire, you know, it's a small state. It only has four electoral college votes, but that could make the difference in a close election, particularly if the DNC and the Biden campaign withhold resources or they wait until after the primary to build an organization. So that could hurt Biden and also Democrats further down the ballot. So the reaction has been, you know, we're just going to go ahead and and do what we've always done, particularly because we have a state law that requires uh, the New Hampshire primary to be before any other similar context. Yeah, I mean, absolutely good point that this is a must-win state, is swing state. So if New Hampshire voters feel slighted by the Democrats, they could take it out on the Democrats at the next election. So it is high risk. But tell us about this law, the idea that it is actually enshrined in law that whatever other states do, New Hampshire must go first. I mean, it's odd to call it a law. Is that really how it is? It's a kind of binding rule? Yes. So New Hampshire has had the first primary since 1920. In the mid-70s, it passed a state law that says the New Hampshire primary must be scheduled at least seven days before any similar contest. So we didn't consider Iowa a similar contest because that was a caucus. So since then, there have been plenty of other states that have tried to move ahead, but the Secretary of State has always waited for the dust to clear and for everyone else to schedule their primaries and then has set the date for the New Hampshire primary. After the vote at the weekend, New Hampshire officials, even Democrats, used this state law to take a defiant stance. And the state's Democratic senator, Maggie Hassan, said New Hampshire would vote first anyway, citing state law. As Adam Gabbard explains, the DNC doesn't take to this sort of disobedience kindly. In 2008, Barack Obama uh, versus Hillary Clinton, Michigan and Florida both moved their primary dates forward without the blessing of the Democratic National Committee. And the Democratic Party essentially said, well, Michigan and Florida, none of your votes are going to count. And that is that is one of the tools they could use if New Hampshire decides to go rogue. So essentially, they could render New Hampshire's vote completely redundant. It remains to be seen exactly what they could do. But that, so they could either strip them of any say in the process. And what they can also do is order might be a bit strong, but they can strongly suggest to Democratic candidates for president that they do not campaign in New Hampshire. So again, kind of taking some of the relevance away from from uh, New Hampshire voters. Now, while New Hampshire and Iowa try to fight back, Democrats in South Carolina are celebrating. They have been moved to the front of the pack. For 2024, it's starting already, but it's... Joseph Bustos is a local politics reporter for this state newspaper in South Carolina. He's already seen potential candidates, both Republicans and Democrats, start to turn up and show their face to the voters. So you'll see a lot of of rallies uh, that come to the state. President Trump uh, had an event at our state house with about several hundred people there, trying to talk to a large group of people with a lot of cameras trying to get the, their message out, get on local media to say, hey, I'm in the state, I'm campaigning. We've had speakers at barbecues uh, that a congressman will hold or 
we'll have political party gatherings for opportunities for people to speak to large groups of people. And is it much more about the air war, meaning TV ads, uh, online advertising, than it is the ground war, which is famous in New Hampshire, the idea of you know, that grassroots shaking hands, face-to-face stuff? Is, is more of South Carolina's campaigning done through screens than it is face-to-face? I think both are important. In South Carolina, it's a cheaper media market than your New York's or Chicago's or LA. We only have four main television markets here in South Carolina, and they're all relatively cheap to get on air. But that retail politics, going to the diner, uh, meeting people where there are, also is important. You've got to do both to to reach people. The voters want to be talked to. They, they want to be reached out to. And knocking on doors does not hurt. It's expensive. It's time-consuming. But if you could get out knocking on doors, whether it's the candidate themselves or people working for them, that will help their campaign. And to what extent do you see a difference, a party difference, a partisan difference between how Democrats and Republicans run their primaries in South Carolina? I think COVID has really changed a lot of campaigning. Democrats, because of COVID in 2020, and we saw to a certain degree that's still trying to filter its way out, uh, Democrats did not want to do door-to-door campaigning, door-knocking during 2020 because of the pandemic. Republicans continued that. And we saw in the 2020 Senate race here, where even though Jamie Harrison in his challenge of Lindsey Graham raised $130 million, was unable to even get within 10 points of Lindsey Graham. So, and that's because the Harris campaign put a lot of their money, almost all of their money, into television advertising, sometimes even on gas pumps. They did not have a ground game to reach out to voters. That's an interesting difference. I mean, the driver for this change in the timetable seems very much to be the president himself. Why would Joe Biden be so keen to see South Carolina edge out New Hampshire and be first in the nation? I hope you love me as much as I love you guys. (laughs) I've been coming here a long time. When I die, I want to be reborn in Charleston, actually. Well, let's go back to 2020. Joe Biden's campaign in 2020, his campaign was struggling. He comes to South Carolina and he turns it around. He wins. He he got the endorsement of Jim Clyburn. Coveted endorsement of the state's most powerful Democrat, Congressman Jim Clyburn. I know Joe. We know Joe. But most importantly, Joe knows us. South Carolina is the first state in the South, but it's also the first state that's where the Democratic electorate is majority black. It's more than 60% black. So that's a very important voting block for Democrats. And in order to get a candidate uh, who could win, you need to be able to win for uh, have a coalition of diverse voters on the Democratic side. So when black voters said, hey, we think Joe Biden could win, that actually is what shot him off to the presidency. Well, given that, what has been the reaction in South Carolina, even among neutrals, actually, to this proposed change in the timetable? I'm guessing people are delighted, but tell me. I I think people are excited that this could happen. It puts a lot of attention on the state. Sometimes you have a disproportionate amount of power that goes to South Carolina. Look what Clyburn was able to get. He was able to push Joe Biden to make a commitment to say, I'm going to put a black woman on the on the Supreme Court and Joe Biden followed through. So 
that is the type of stuff that sometimes keeps coming back is it's a lot more influence for the state of South Carolina. It's going to be a mess for journalists to cover because we're going to have to be, you know, <laughs> Republicans will be in one place in New Hampshire, Democrats in South Carolina. But um, what do you think will be the impact long term if that happens? Well, let's we can look at the political economy in the state. It could help bring Democratic operatives to South Carolina. When we get to a general election, one of the issues Democrats have had is they've been shellacked. <laughs> um, they have not won the governor's office since 1998. Their candidate for governor this past election lost by nearly 18 points. And it could energize the party. It might bring money into the state party, which which would be helpful in trying to win back statewide races or at least some state house seats that could be potentially helpful for the Democratic Party in the long term. Now, primaries don't just happen for the Democrats. Republicans vote too, and traditionally they follow the same calendar every four years. But interestingly, they have no plans to shake things up on their side. Adam Gabbard again. Well, I mean, there's not been the same demand within the Republican Party. And I mean, Republican voters, we know, are predominantly a white group. The first two states are predominantly a white population. It kind of makes sense for Republicans, right? And because of the makeup of the party, there hasn't been the clamour that there has been within Democrats to give different people within the party a voice. And also it's kind of enabled them to potentially make Biden look at, and the Democrats look a little bit silly and a bit disorganised. I mean, I don't think that's a huge thing, but as Biden and the Democrats are kind of having this brouhaha, the Republicans came out and said, yep, we're sticking with the same thing. So it makes them look like they know what they're doing, which uh, right now is <laughs> pretty rare occurrence. This is the proposal, Adam, for 2024. But under the schemes, I understand it, the calendar could be revisited every time. It's not as if Joe Biden is just wanting to set this in stone forever and ever. What's the thinking behind that degree of flexibility and flux here? Well, yeah, so the, the plan that they're voting on wouldn't just change the calendar for 2024. It would also set in place a procedure whereby every election can be different. And the Democratic National Committee would gather to decide the calendar before every election. And in terms of both parties, states come and go in terms of their importance. So Iowa and New Hampshire were purple states. Iowa is now pretty much Republican, I would say. Um, New Hampshire has been fairly solidly Democrat. You know, not if you set another plan in place for 100 years, uh, that doesn't mean those states are always going to be important to your party. But also, you know, a, just a sense in terms of ideology of being a bit more democratic, a little bit fairer for people in those states. Everyone gets to enjoy it. It's going to be so tricky because Republicans will be doing it and they will be picking a presidential candidate. They have no incumbent. So the media, the journalists are going to be in New Hampshire. So it's going to be very hard to resist the temptation to go there if you are a Democratic candidate. And yet, as you say, there is that fear that your delegates, if you win any, might not be seated at the convention. This is going to run and run and you'll be following. What's your gut telling you, Adam, about who's going to win this standoff? The tradition and the burgers of New Hampshire or Joe Biden and his determination to make a change? I think at the moment, everything, it seems pretty unlikely that a small state can stand up to the Democratic Party. But at the moment, it looks like New Hampshire is going to win in inverted commas. I mean, I, I think they're going to stick with it and have their rogue primary first. 
and just, you know, bedevil the consequences. Democratic bosses in the in New Hampshire have said they're going to have it early. The New Hampshire Secretary of State, who's in charge of when the date is going to happen, he's insisted it's going to be early. So it looks like Biden might lose this one. Adam, as you may know, we like to ask our guests on the podcast a what else question, usually something a bit different. In this case, sort of related, because you and I have been talking all about 2024 uh, and how the Democratic Party calendar has in effect been reshaped to suit Joe Biden and the kind of timetable that favours him. Which really, I suppose, means this is a good week to ask, how is Joe Biden doing? I mean, this has been a big week for him. On the one hand, you know, how do people rate his handling of the spy balloon, the Chinese balloon that was hovering over the United States? I told them to shoot it down. On Wednesday. On Wednesday. But the recommendation... They said to me, let's wait till the safest place to do it. And also his very big set-piece State of the Union uh, speech late on Tuesday night. Bundling it all together, how's Joe Biden doing? As far as Americans are concerned, not very well. Only about 43% of Americans approve of Biden. His approval rating's been below 50% for about 18 months. That's better than Trump was doing towards the end of his presidency, but not by much. And other polls show that most Americans don't want Biden to run again in 2024. But everything at the moment suggests he will. Unemployment's really low, which is great. But inflation, like a lot of places, it's been really, really high. Uh, It's come down a bit. But also gas prices, always so crucial to Americans and American voters. They've been at historic highs. Other things haven't helped. You know, the classified documents that keep popping up in various locations haven't helped. Uh, There's the never-ending Fox News coverage of Hunter Biden's laptop. And obviously, you know, the sort of slightly farcical situation with a balloon recently. And of course, what's different compared to the last two years is now Republicans control the House. So they're going to be investigating very publicly, very loudly, uh, things like Hunter Biden's laptop. Those are struggles for him. And just on the chance he had for traditionally you'd say for a reset was that state of the union address on tuesday he couldn't announce any big programs partly for the reason you said which is republicans control the house that you can't really change you know write new laws if one of the two houses of congress is in the hands of the other party but uh, some good reviews for joe biden particularly in terms of and this goes to the age issue particularly in terms of his ability to think on his feet and the- McCarthy had to shush members of his own party at least four times as they booed and interrupted the president when he talked about China, about fentanyl, and when he noted that some Republicans have proposed cutting Medicare and Social Security. Well, I'm glad to see you. No, I tell you, I, I enjoy conversion. He gave a few comebacks to hecklers on the Republican benches and looked pretty sprightly for a man who is, after all, the oldest president in American history. Absolutely. So this is one of the things Democrats were watching for beforehand was his stamina. Biden is 80 years old. Um, It was like, you know, can he stand up there for 70 minutes? I think his speech was 72 or 73 minutes and speak competently and clearly, which sometimes hasn't been a strength. 
And uh, I don't want to sound patronising at all. I mean, it's difficult. I wouldn't want to be standing up and giving an hour long speech. And as you say, like with hecklers, and he sort of uh, managed to make a victory from it. Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be stopped. You're saying, right, so Social Security and Medicare is off the books now. We've got unanimity, uh, which didn't go really well. And when the, it just made them look, he managed to make some people, the sort of Marjorie Taylor Greens of this world, look really silly. And even we had Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican Speaker, sitting behind Biden. He seemed to be trying to shush his own people, kind of. He was getting a sense of the mood that this is not a good thing. And I think Biden played really well on that. I think he's really been good, actually. And maybe this is why he helped dealt with the hecklers well. But he's been seen as someone who is kind of, um, he does politics by feel. So good at interacting with people, you know, has has a human touch. And perhaps this sort of back and forth kind of comedy seller <laughs> style interaction actually played into his hands. Yeah, no, completely my view too. I thought he's not a Barack Obama who specialises in the grand, eloquent oratory of a set piece. Actually, if it becomes a bit of a barroom brawl, it favoured him. And there are not many 80-year-olds, I have to say, who could speak for 72 minutes and handle the you know unplanned spontaneity of a heckle. And yet he did it. It did him probably uh, some good, um, given those poll numbers you've told us about. So all of that set to play out on this revised timetable uh, as you've been setting out. Adam Gabbett, thanks so much for talking to us on Politics Weekly America. Thank you very much. My thanks also to Holly Raymer and Joseph Bustos. But that is all from me for this week. It has been a busy week in Westminster with a mini cabinet reshuffle and a visit from Volodymyr Zelensky to the UK. My colleague Gabby Hinsliff discusses all of this with Pippa Crera and Salma Shah on Wednesday's episode of Politics Weekly UK. So do look out for that wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens. The executive producer is Maz Ebtahaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.